1: What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golliver with the Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Michael Pina of SB Nation. Michael, the hiatus drags on. Uh, we have no major developments uh, at, at this point in terms of when the NBA season might be back on, but I did write a story over the weekend about what the financial hit could look like and what it could mean for next season if they're not able to get these playoffs uh, back on schedule. So let me just run through the kind of grim forecast for you uh, very quickly. All right. We're looking at now potentially more than a billion dollar revenue hit if they can't get the season back on. And that's going to take into account the, the remaining regular season games that couldn't be played and all the gate revenue involved there. That's taking into account whatever money they would take in from the gate at the playoffs. Of course, there's other television related revenues as well. That is a big time number, you know, a billion plus. The league's uh, average annual revenues right now are right around eight to nine billion dollars so it's a huge chunk of their business right um, in turn by not having that money next year's salary cap could kind of drop basically somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, eight to ten to 15 million dollars depending on uh, you know whether these playoffs uh, take place or not so again all these teams as recently as January are planning for the salary cap to increase this year to next year, now would be in a situation where the cap uh, might actually decrease. And that could have a lot of ramifications. Uh, You know, It it could put some teams into the luxury tax who weren't expecting to be there. Um, It could just dry up all the free agency spending power that teams might have. So this year's free agents might not be able to get as big of contracts. There could be a lot of ripple effects. Now it is important to point out in similar situations like lockout years, for example, There can be a negotiation between the league and the players to say, you know what, we're not going to drop the salary cap. We're just going to sort of leave it where it is um, to kind of just make things easier so that teams aren't kind of getting screwed in those manners that I was describing and that the business can kind of continue um, forward. In this case, though, Michael, if they did agree to do that, if they said, hey, we're going to keep the salary cap as is, the owners would actually need to be paying more to the players in the short term. Um, because, uh, the salary cap would be sort of artificially increased, uh, if that makes sense uh, under these negotiations. And so I'm curious, like if you were an owner or you're starting to think about some of these dynamics in terms of the big time financial hit, um, should the, the league be aiming for that? Should they try to keep the salary cap a little bit higher? Um, or, or at the same level, rather than having it drop drastically next year, like is that just better for business? Does it make everybody's life easier? What would be your opinion if you were on one of these owner calls?
2: I th- it's going to be really difficult because, I mean, I think it's it's definitely to answer your question better for everyone if somehow they were able to the- keep the cap as stable as possible. You know, these teams plan out years in advance for. Uh, free agency, for trades, for uh, their just their financial uh, decision making. And so if you were to suddenly drop the salary cap dramatically, um, in an unprecedented way, as you said, it would impact their luxury tax payments, it would impact, um, you know, what players that they're able to keep, what players they would be looking to target. um And it would just throw everything into kind of a haywire. I mean, just thinking ahead to 2021, the summer of 2021, when there's so many different stars entering free agency, if teams that have been planning years for open cap space to afford, you know, max level cap space to afford some of these guys, and suddenly they cannot, I just think it would be a a major detriment to just the the overall health of the league. You know, this league now thrives on free agency and player movement. And that's one of the more exciting, love it or leave it, that's one of the more exciting uh, aspects of the NBA right now. And, and, uh, you know, in terms of trade rumors and free agency rumors and just all of that. So if that's, you know, damaged in any way, I think it's It's not going to be good for business.
1: Right. You want the chaos to come in free agency from how many deals are getting signed so quickly and the huge numbers, and oh, everybody's so impressed. Oh, all these teams combined to spend a billion dollars in 24 hours. That's the kind of chaos you want. The kind of chaos you don't want is teams thinking, oh, wait a minute. I had like 20 million to spend, but now I only have 12 million to spend, right? And so the kinds of players who I was anticipating being able to get. I can no longer even bid for, right? Or you don't want Mm -hmm. players out there saying, oh, I have to only sign a one-year contract because no teams are out there with any money to spend uh, on me, and now I have to go into free agency again the following year and hope that the financial picture rebounds. We all remember what happened with the salary cap spike in 2016, right? Where it allows Golden State to sign Kevin Durant, and it totally changes the entire framework of the league for basically the next three or four years, right? Everything could be uh, kind of uh, pieced back to that moment. You could mm-hmm. have a similar situation here where in reverse, now a lot of teams don't have money to spend, so it changes their thinking. But yet, after the NBA clears this whole coronavirus thing, life gets back to, to normal, revenues are back to normal, there could actually be a huge spike the following year, right? So you could actually have kind of chaotic uh, interference, for lack of a better term, in terms of a drop and then a spike in back-to-back summers, which again, I think is uh, not good uh, for the overall health and stability and fairness uh, of the league in terms of which teams are able to succeed and and have long-term plans and which ones aren't. So I do think, and this, this whole drop and then spike theory has been put forward by uh, John Hollinger and Danny LaRue at The Athletic. Uh, they laid it out in really well in a piece. I think everybody should go read that. Um, I do think the the league and the players really, too, should be motivated to try to smooth out that effect, don't you think?
2: 100%. I, I do question, though, how motivated... Uh, or how agreeable the owners will be in all of this, because as you said at the top, you know, they're the ones who have to kind of pay up front to make this happen and ensure that stability. During the last uh, labor negotiations, when uh, there were new media rights deals that were going to spike the cap dramatically, and there was talk of potentially artificially smoothing it, and uh, that was a proposal put forth by the NBA and the players, the players' association. Basically, was like we don't trust you. That was basically the message there. And so we saw that humongous spike, and we saw players get crazy money in the summer of 2016. And so I just wonder how many of the owners will think back to that. And uh, you know, I, I don't. I'm not saying that they're shooting themselves in the foot just to shoot themselves in the foot, but carrying the brunt of it forward when a lot of these owners, I would imagine, are seeing you know, outside financial ramifications for their own personal portfolios and their own personal businesses. So uh, I think there's a lot of moving parts here. And I'm not you know, super optimistic that it'll just be a smooth negotiation.
1: No, no question about it. I mean, let's use a couple of examples. Mickey Harrison with the Miami Heat, his primary business is Carnival Cruise Lines. At this Yikes. point, uh, cruise lines are not a thing, right? And we're not totally sure when they're going to be a thing again or if they're going to be a thing again, right? So if you're in that spot, the idea of prepaying millions of dollars to your players uh, in a smoothing scenario based on you know, anticipated future revenue could be a tough sell. Tillman Fertitta is another great example. A lot of his money comes from casinos, right? I'm not sure if you guys have seen pictures of Las Vegas lately, but it is the biggest ghost town anywhere in the world. I mean, all the casinos are closed. There's no people on the strip. I mean, you could walk around and not see another person for 20 minutes, right? That's not good for casino business owners in any way. And I think that there's a probably a reason why Tillman Fertitta has been Uh, so kind of vocal about having fans in the building and trying to keep things like normal and everything else because Mm -hmm. uh, those revenues are probably more important to him than the average NBA owner, right? So you're going to need buy-in from a lot of different uh, types of business people to get a, a sort of a smoothing scenario going forward. But I think the real takeaway here is this is one major reason why Adam Silver is pushing so hard to have a playoffs because any revenue you're generating from the playoffs is making the, the salary cap decline or those negotiations like easier to swallow, right? It's, uh, you mm-hmm. know, putting on the playoffs makes more money from the television side. And so therefore um, your deficit uh, compared to expectations is lower. And so uh, I think that's one reason why we should kind of be patient here as observers and say, okay, let's see if they can really solve the playoffs or salvage them in some way. Uh, because the the carryover effect is not just about can they crown a champion or not. It's about what is the financial picture of the league look like for the next two or three seasons, right? So uh, just something to kind of keep in mind. I know your brain was sort of going to similar territory this week, uh, Michael, in a piece that you wrote for SB Nation, because you're, you're digging into like, okay, well, who are these free agents who could hit the market this summer or maybe this fall? Uh, depending if they delay the postseason and, and therefore have to delay free agency, and I know you were trying to play matchmaker, right? You're trying to take certain <laughs> sort of high-profile players and and dump them onto teams, and you know I don't know, you know you being you, you know Michael being the pod, you know he's probably trying to you know get a little reaction from people too, uh, you know just for his own gratification. But uh, I want to run through my three favorite matchmaker scenarios that you came up with. And I want you to kind of break down why those players should fit with those teams. How's that sound?
2: Sure. That sounds great.
1: Fred Van Vliet, New York Knicks. Boom. You're just trying to get roasted by all of Canada, aren't you? (laughs) Walk me through it. How is the beloved son of Toronto, Mr. uh, Nearly Finals MVP, according to Hubie Brown himself, Fred Van Vliet, going to leave Toronto for the New York Knicks? How's that working out? So
2: I guess if you're Toronto right now, or I guess I should say if you're New York, the only way you're going to lure Fred Van Vliet away from Toronto is with a lot of money, like a lot of a guaranteed deal that is just humongous. I don't I'm not going to say, you know, they're going to give him the max, but it would have to be a the caveat here is that it would have to be a um, a humongous bag of cash to to get him out of there because the Raptors. So the Raptors basically are in a situation where they feel like they can get Giannis Antetokounmpo. They're hopeful. They're optimistic. That's why they want as much cap flexibility as possible. They maxed out Pascal Siakam a year earlier than they had to. They have, you know, Kyle Lowry under contract for one more season and 30-something million dollars. That's not so much a long-term concern. But uh, if you were to pay and make a long-term commitment Commitment to Fred Van Vliet, that just makes it a little trickier to to get Giannis in the door. So if that's their mindset right now, I could see a possibility where uh, you know Fred Fred is promised uh, you know a, a he's already plays a ton of minutes for the Raptors, but he's promised basically to be the the marquee free agent signing for the New York Knicks and an opportunity to turn around or be the beginning of a turnaround that is like 30 plus years in the making. So I can see why he would be attracted to it potentially. Um, and, you know, if you're the Knicks, you have not had a, I guess, since Jer- not, not counting Jeremy Lin, you have not had a quality point guard in 20 plus years. Um, and not only that, but... I feel like Van Vliet is such a great culture setter, and you know what I mean by that is he's he's obviously a champion. He's got champion experience. He's played in humongous moments. He's hit huge shots. Um, the Raptors would not have won the championship without him. Uh, but he's also one of the league's most, you know, preeminent grinders and someone who doesn't expect overnight success. And he sort of epit- epitomizes everything that the Knicks should try and be as an organization instead of this continuous team building strategy that doubles as one long get-rich-quick scheme. So I-, I just think it would make a lot of sense for for the Knicks and make a lot of sense for Fred Van Fleet, potentially. I mean, I don't want to say that playing for the Knicks is a smart thing to do, but in the right role, uh, I, I feel like it would not be the worst decision in the world and he could get a lot of money out of it.
1: Yeah, I mean, it makes sense for his bank account is what you're trying to say, Michael. I mean, <laughs> yes, exactly. So cash out Fred Van Vliet is sort of of the the game plan here. How good could a team be if Fred Van Vliet is like their number one max level player, right? Like, does he? how much does he Oof. move the needle from a wins-loss <laughs> perspective for the Knicks? Because I guess to me... I kind of see what you're saying from Toronto's side. I feel like they're going to identify him as a core piece. And if they had to trade one Mm -hmm. of the older big guys or let one of the older big guys go in free agency and try to keep Van Vliet along with Siakam and have that sort of be the centerpieces of their pitch to Giannis, I could see them kind of playing it like that, right? But let's say for the sake of argument, Toronto follows the script that you're describing. Um, Is New York, completely convinced that fred's the guy who's going to help them like be an eighth seed or is that is that uh, too fantastical
2: i i think it just you know going from where we saw, what we saw out of the new york knicks this season without fred van fleet to what they would be next year with him with a lot of the same players on board i would imagine or a, a majority of the same high minute players still in the rotation uh, I do not see the eight seed uh, anywhere in the near future, but basically I, I posited this as a better case scenario than what I think the Knicks will try to do, which is you know trade for someone like Chris Paul, give up future assets, and then watch as Chris Paul just completely disintegrates and you have you know $80 million hanging over your head over the next two years or whatever Chris Paul's owed. Uh, so that's kind of it, it's like Fred Van Vliet is not the best case scenario for the Knicks, but he's just so far from what you would expect from the organization that I think it's a positive step in the right direction.
1: Well, let's let's put it this way there is no amount of money they could overpay Fred Van Vliet that would be worse than their spending last summer, right? With Julius sure. Randle, Taj Gibson, uh, the three months or four months they got out of Marcus Morris and everything else, right? So by their own standard, even drastically overpaying Fred Van Vliet would be a giant win compared to what they've usually done because it's actually a position of need. Um, you could talk yourself in, him, into him being a capable starter at that spot. He would give you numbers. He would be exciting. Um, the team would still be completely dreadful, but there are a lot of... <laughs> yes. They could burn money in a lot of worse ways. All right. Uh, your second scenario, and I really like this one, Montrez Harrell to the Detroit Pistons. So presumably you know, Detroit clears out Andre Drummond, this guy who's not a modern center. They trade Mm -hmm. him for, you know, a bag of peanuts at the deadline of the Cleveland Cavaliers. And, you know, Detroit's got a hole at the five, right? So you're trying to plug it with a more modern solution, a guy who's probably outplayed his sixth man role and sixth man money uh, with the LA Clippers. Um, What other layers to this decision making do you see? Is it just a simple fact that the Clippers can't afford to keep everybody? I think that that is a part here. Um,
2: It's more just like, In going through this exercise, I was looking at all the teams that would have uh, a lot of cap space. A lot of the teams are really bad, including the Detroit Pistons. But this organization is kind of embarking on a soft rebuild. And what I mean by that is, you know, they could have moved Derek Rose and Luke Kennard at the deadline. But they didn't because they want to be somewhat competitive next year. So they get out from... Andre Drummond, they don't want to pay him. So that's just like the clear signal that, hey, we're not really trying to make the playoffs next season. That's not our objective. But at the same time, they don't want to be in the basement. So I think they're going to spend money this summer. And Montrezl Harrell just makes a lot of sense. I mean, he's got a very similar offensive game to Drummond, except he plays infinitely harder on every possession. And, you know, if you're a team that's not really trying to put two feet in the pool and rebuild with conviction... This is someone who's easy to root for. Uh, His his offensive skill set just makes life easier for ball handlers. And he isn't, what I really like about it is he isn't too good so as to damage your standing in the lottery. He's just kind of a really solid piece uh, who fits really well with what they have there. They can keep Christian Wood, who has a really low cap hold, and they can kind of start to build something logical around those two in the front court and obviously Blake Griffin is still hanging around and we don't know what his health will look like coming off of knee surgery but I'm pretty confident that even those two Blake and Montrez could coexist and I also don't think that Blake is long for Detroit so I really wouldn't concern myself too much with that but I just like the fit here
1: yeah, I think if you're Detroit, you can't be building this thing around Blake anymore, right? Like at some no. point, your, your hope within the next year or two is you could find some deal to kind of get off of him and you move forward. I mean, is it a little bit weird between those two players if Blake comes back healthy? Is your spacing cramped? Do you have enough like length and, and traditional shot blocking if you're playing both those guys' heavy minutes together? Probably not. And then is Blake kind of versatile enough defensively at this stage of his career with the injury issues To sort of really make you know an ideal defensive system work you know maybe not but i think if you are going to be committing a lot of money to montrez harrell you're sort of looking at him as your franchise level big for the next three or four years right like he's not going to be Mm -hmm. an all-star level player probably but he's going to be your most reliable kind of foundational uh, type big man and if you're asking me who would i rather have andre drummond or montrez harrell for the next four years or frankly, if you're asking me who would I rather have Montrez Harrell or Blake Griffin for the next four years, there's a really strong argument you'd rather have Harrell. I mean, he is very consistent. He brings great energy, like you mentioned. He is a pretty skilled scorer in the right situation as long as he has people setting him up. Um, and I think defensively, there's holes, but you know, he's able to, to contribute. I mean, he's not a, you know, a huge negative. Now, does he benefit, and do his numbers benefit from playing with a lot of talented players? Uh, you know, in LA, I, I think there's a, there's an argument to be made there for sure. But he's also found success with lots of different types of teammates on the Clippers because they've turned their roster over here, you know, multiple times over the last couple seasons. So, um, you know, if I was a team with cap space this summer, Harold would be one of my very top priorities. I think he's got a strong case to, to win Sixth Man of the Year this year. Um, mm-hmm. And I just think in general, he's one of the more underrated players in the league. So um, I like where your head was at on that one, for sure. I do wonder, though, does Steve Ballmer have some scheme to kind of keep Harrell, right? Is there some way where they can keep him or do they try to move in a different direction, uh, keep Zubach uh, as their starting center, and then maybe go cheaper or go smaller even, uh, you know, with those backup minutes? Uh, that's a really tough decision uh, and one that we'll just have to kind of see play out. All right, your third and final scenario here that I want to talk about, Michael, Paul Millsap to the Phoenix Suns. And, you know, I've been kind of harping on the idea that I thought Denver should have traded Millsap. he just sort of run his course from an age perspective in terms of kind of a a big time contributor. Now they're not even going to be able to benefit from having him during the playoffs potentially. So that winds up, you know, blowing up in their face a little bit, unfortunately. Um, Why did you... Pencil in the Phoenix Suns here because if I'm understanding this correctly, doesn't DeAndre Ayton want to be a power forward? So even though he definitely should be a center, are we pushing DeAndre Ayton down to small forward in this scenario, Michael? Or, or how are you accommodating for Paul up? Well,
2: <laughs> I know that the Phoenix Suns are your favorite team, Ben. So I thought this, I, I wrote this one
1: specifically with you in mind. Well, oh, I appreciate that. You're just trolling me individually, just like you do on this podcast all the time. Um, but continue. Um, yeah, I mean, no,
2: I mean, everything we saw from Aiton over the past couple months before the, the the season was postponed was with him at the five and a lot of success. You know, they had Kelly Oubre before he had surgery, uh, Mikael Bridges, Ricky Rubio, Devin Booker. That lineup was extremely good. Uh, so Aiton just kind of looks like more and more as the season was going along and progressing, he looked more and more like a legitimate two-way center, which is a huge development uh, for the Phoenix Suns. So I see that. I see Devin Booker, who has also developed. You know, he, he technically was an all-star this year, although he probably should have been one bef- over Russell Westbrook anyway. And so you have this really intriguing young core that, in my opinion, should now be looking at, okay, what are we going to be or how are we going to get to the next level um, and what teams out there should we be modeling ourselves after? And, you know, they're not going to be the Los Angeles Lakers. They're not going to be the Los Angeles Clippers. That's just not the track that they're on. The track that they're on is what the Denver Nuggets were on a few years back when they signed Paul Millsap, and he helped elevate them to be a really uh, competitive playoff-caliber team. So you take—it's kind of the parallel here is Nikola Jokic and Jamal Murray with Devin
1: Booker and DeAndre Ayton. And so— yeah, so uh, what I, I'm picturing here, Michael, is you, you have him, Paul Millsap, lined up as the driver's ed instructor, and he's had a lot of success in that role of like teaching guys kind of the right way to play, be professional on and off the court. Here's how you actually structure a competent defense and everything else. And I think most driver's ed instructors, if I remember correctly, usually they're they're guys in their 50s and guys in their 60s. Now, at some point. If the driver's ed instructor goes blind, he's not going to be a very good driver's ed instructor anymore, right? Now, all of a sudden, things are getting dicey. It's the blind leading the blind. You're getting into car accidents, and the insurance premiums are going way up. And even (laughs) though you have the, the signs on your car that say ABC driver's school, you know, everyone's just wondering why you're zigzagging all over the road. Is Paul Millsap into the blind driver's instructor phase of his career? In other words, does this idea sound better in theory, than it would play out in practice because he just doesn't have that much left. This is one of the best
2: metaphors I've ever heard from you, I just got to say. That was beautiful. Well, thank Um, you.
1: Look, this is honestly what I'm worried about. It's a little bit of the KG return to Minnesota, and I know you love KG, but... I was one of the few people who was like, Come on, are you really trying to do this? And you and you talk it up, oh, he's gonna mentor Kat, it's gonna work out so great and oh But you, Ben,
2: Ben, 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 look how great Carl Anthony Towns is on the defensive
1: end. That's, that's what all I'm saying. goes back to Kevin <laughs> Garnett. <laughs> that's what I'm saying, Michael. You've brought so many stats to the, the table this year about how frustrated you are with Carl anthony Towns' development. And the narrative juice is so sweet. Oh, KG's going to mentor Kat and turn him into this all-time player, right? Um, and, and this is obviously a lesser discussion because we're talking about Paul Millsap and and DeAndre Ayton. I mean, come on. But you get what I'm saying. Like, is this, is this idea better than how it could really play out?
2: I've, well, I've, I mean, at that point, just to continue the comparison, KG was just beyond washed up at that point in his career like Paul Millsap is he's still a very solid contributor and there are some like you could totally make the case that he's been when healthy the second most consistent player on the Denver Nuggets and the Denver Nuggets are you know they I think they have the the second or the third best record in the Western Conference right now so he's still uh, a very productive player he's a defense first professional he's selfless And I do like the, what I like about the driver's ed instructor metaphor there is just like, yeah, you bring him in. He kind of, he's not on the same timeline as Booker and Hayden and that's fine. Like this team needs to just get to the playoffs and learn what that experience is like. And then when Paul Millsap's contract comes off the books, like we're not expecting a humongous long-term commitment here, but when that contract comes off the books, then you replace them. You're hopefully in a place where you can replace that production with a player who doesn't necessarily have to fill the off-court role or the locker room role as well. And Booker and Aiton and some other players in there can kind of pick up the void there. So uh, that's kind of where my head's at with it. And I just think that the way that Millsap plays, how he doesn't need shots, he doesn't need touches. um, and he's just so good on the defensive end and so smart still. Like his on off numbers with Denver are just they've been terrific ever since they signed him for a reason. And if he's able to, you know, give you know eighty
1: five percent of that to Phoenix, then that's just a coup for them. I like what you're thinking. Look, I've defended Paul Millsap's honor for the better part of a decade. I'm just reaching the point where I'm ready to sell the stock. Uh you know, the last couple of years I think he, he had a big injury in eighteen. Missed 12 games in 19. I think he missed something like 20 games uh, in this year, 2020. Um, that part has me nervous. I think he's about to turn 35. That part definitely has me nervous. And what really has me nervous more than anything is that Phoenix would just throw some crazy number at him that would just make me want to vomit, right? And it would it would be to be able to convince him to go there that premium that the Suns have to pay usually when they try to get free agents or even, you know, sometimes trading for guys' contracts, it's always just revolting. And I'm just already preemptively nervous about how much uh, it would <laughs> cost for them to do that. And then what the expectations would look like for him going there. Um, I think that he might just be better suited to taking a smaller contract on a team that's in position to be a contender already and, you know, try to to fit into a smaller role than what you're describing Um, because I do think that Phoenix would need to lean on him fairly heavily, and I'm just not sure he's that guy anymore. All right, Michael, I loved all of those scenarios. People should go check out. You have uh, additional scenarios on the SB Nation article, so check Michael out on Twitter, at Michael V. Pina, and you can hop in and and yell at him or agree with him uh, on his uh, matchmaking expertise. After
0: the trip, I drove my van back with all my equipment. I could hear a little bit of whimpering and crying,
2: When Eldon Kidd, a father of five running rafting tours through Mexico, found two Guatemalan girls stowed
0: away in the back of his tour van one night, it changed his life forever. They pleaded with me, can you bring us to the border? I agreed. And I thought, can I do this again somehow?
2: From the team behind American Skyjacker comes an epic
0: new crime series, American Coyote. Being a coyote is a dangerous and illegal business. You have to be prepared for the worst. The unbelievable tale of a legendary coyote named Eldon Kidd. American Coyote. Listen
2: on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows.
1: We had an interesting wrinkle uh, to switch gears here in a Rachel Nichols interview with Adam Silver last week. She asked him directly, what are you going to do about the NBA awards? And, uh, you know, what happens with the awards show? If the season's delayed, how is this going to play out? You know, the season could be canceled. And Adam Silver said, look, I'm not there yet. I haven't made a decision. And that had me a little bit nervous, Michael. And I want to just state like very clearly, this is a very weird situation with the season being suspended. If it does wind up getting canceled, I think that there should be no debate here. The NBA needs to hand out awards, season-ending awards for a couple of reasons. First of all, history matters. There's been an MVP every single year, basically since the 50s. That streak should not stop just because we didn't get the final quarter of the season. You look at the lockout shortened seasons where there's 50 games or 66 games played. I think the average team has played 65 games this season. So to me, that's enough of a sample size. Yes, it's frustrating. We didn't get to see LeBron and, and Giannis kind of go head to head down the stretch for that debate. And some of these other awards You know, may or may not have been settled but I think that there needs to be awards in part because the collective bargaining agreement ties performance to compensation, right? So some guys are qualifying for supermax deals because they win MVP or defensive player of the year, or they get all NBA. You can't just not hand those out and, and therefore deny guys the opportunity to get those kinds of awards. So for me, there absolutely needs to be awards no matter what. Now, how does it actually play out is a very tricky question, right? Because If you're trying to salvage some part of the season and you do it in June, you can't do your normal voting in April, right? When when it would normally happen, because there could be games to come. But if the NBA does decide to say, okay, we are canceling the rest of the regular season, then I think they should be ready to hold the awards voting basically as soon as possible, right? Um, Now this all leads to this idea, though, that usually they have this uh, red carpet ceremony in Los Angeles at an airport hangar with, you know, hundreds of media members and hundreds of people in attendance and the stars fly in from all around the country and everything else, that sounds like an event that would be completely against every CDC guideline that's out there, right, Michael? So there could be easily be a situation where even if they can salvage the playoffs and play them in empty arenas, they're actually not able to put on the awards show. So I'm going to ask you, uh, from a brainstorming perspective, um, if you've put any thought into like what this awards process could look like or should look like. And I bring this up because uh, we had a guy named Louie in the Philippines who writes, you know, I'm a longtime listener and I'm a new fan of Michael Pina and his smooth, sarcastic remarks. I'm currently stuck in a community quarantine and I had a lot of time to do some thinking. I usually listen to 12 podcasts, but now I'm down to three these days and Open Floor is one of them. So I appreciate that, Louie. And his brainstorm, his quarantine brainstorm included an idea for the award show. And he wanted Adam Silver to give a press conference or a speech. He wanted a lively in-studio guest performance with Dame Dalla, Damian Lillard, rapping in the background. He wanted Inside the NBA as the host, um, you know, maybe do it similar to like the All-Star Draft. And then he wanted... uh, speeches from people who did win the awards to come in by video call Um, and then he wanted live twitter reactions hopefully with nba players encouraged to participate because they couldn't all come together um, in in one spot and then he was hoping that there would be donations from the nba to the winners and like local organizations for where they play that are tied into coronavirus uh relief efforts so this is a pretty well-thought-out idea by Louie in the Philippines, and he emailed us openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. Michael, is there anything you would scratch from Louie's idea? Do you have a better idea? Um, and how would you have these awards play out?
2: First of all, Louie, great email. Um, I am honored that you are a fan of me and my smooth, sarcastic remarks. And honestly, like... This is so detailed and well thought out that I don't even know why I'm I'm here right now. We should just be reading your emails on the well, air and letting people take them in. Here's the Not thing, to Devalue Michael, myself real quick, but yeah, no, go ahead, Ben.
1: No, I'm I'm the one having the existential crisis every time we get an email <laughs> from one of these guys praising you lately. I feel like John Wall watching Bradley Beal fifty point efforts. Like, <laughs> there goes my franchise, right? It's just being swooped out from right underneath me. Thanks a lot. But no, in all seriousness, just like John Wall, you know, I'm going to say the right thing. Michael, I'm a big fan of your smooth, sarcastic efforts as well. Thank you so much for everything <laughs> you bring here. It's, it's not a fight for control of the franchise in any way whatsoever. We're all on the same page. Everything is great. Um, so, no, but in all seriousness, what do you think about the awards? So, I, I mean, I,
2: off the top, just... I'm not a huge fan of the award show in general, so if it just didn't happen, that would be cool with me. But I do like some of the elements that Louis brings to the table here. And so I'm kind of coming a little bit out of left field with what I was thinking. And I I incorporated a lot of what Louis said in his to my own idea, which is probably not uh, practical in real life. But I'm just going to throw this out there. I don't know uh, if you, Ben, or if any members of the Open Floor Globe uh, were a part of or heard about Club Quarantine over the weekend. It was basically, for those who do not know, uh, DJ D-Nice basically played a nine-hour set on Instagram Live from his living room. And it turned into this incredible, surreal social media experience where you had Will Smith, Rihanna, Michelle Obama, Oprah, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Dr. J, all these people were in the room watching and taking part, and they were in the comments. And it was just like, it was honestly just one of the most incredible things I've like ever been. I'm not going to say I was a part of it, but I did watch it.
1: Wait, so this uh, is on but,
2: Instagram Live, right?
1: Yes, it was incredible. And so, so let me ask you, like I, my invite must've got lost in the mail. How'd you get invited? <laughs> I mean, what happened? Like, I know I, I understand when there's like parties at one Oak that I don't get into fine. Like I already understand that, but uh, no one notified me of this party, Michael. Am I just not cool enough? I wasn't on the list. I know. I, I don't mean to come here to hurt your feelings. It was an open public forum. I should have shot
2: you a text. That
1: was my fault, Ben. Oh, we'll, we'll, we'll so take you, care of it. You were the bouncer. <laughs> <laughs> You kept me out because my pants weren't good enough?
2: <laughs> basically, and you wear glasses. That was basically the, the only other entry. Point. Oh, uh, my I, I don't mean gosh. to be mean,
1: but that's what the deal was. So you're just um, like, four eyes, you're out, 110,000 people. <laughs> you can all stream with D-Nice, no problem. And you can hang out with Obama.
2: So that's exactly what happened. So in, in trying to tie this into <laughs> NBA award show, um, I, I feel like the award show – could possibly capture that same vibe. And what I'm imagining is, you know, Adam Silver just basically going to d Nice's apartment with, I'm going to just say Charles Barkley, and we don't need the whole inside the NBA crew because we're all social distancing, but Barkley there because he's the most entertaining one and he's our favorite, I think. And basically, you just turn the award show into club quarantine, and you have all the players in there, and they're commenting, and they're talking to each other in the chat. And, you know, DJ D-Nice is is calling everybody out and hyping them up and taking song requests. And it's just this real, like, community vibe and a wonderful engagement opportunity for just everybody. And I'm sure there would be a ton of other celebrities in there, and we'd even let you be a part of it, Ben. Uh, and it would it would be cool. I mean, I don't really know how this all would work or anything like that, but just thinking off the, the, like about it, this would be the most fun way to to pull it off. I think.
1: I love how you're straight up treating me like the blind driver's ed instructor <laughs> of this party. Like that's that's the level of respect that I get from you. It's crazy. Um, no, I think you're on the right track. There's no question. I wrote about this a little bit in my newsletter as well um, this week for the Washington Post, but. The NBA is trying to be the social media league forever, and it really is. And you're looking at all the NBA guys right now. What are they doing? They're all on Instagram Live all day long. So much so that I'm hearing complaints from media members being like, look, not everybody has to be on Instagram Live. Like, if you don't really have a great story to tell, don't just sit there and randomly broadcast from your living room. It's okay. Um, now, generally, I think, you know, all content is good time, uh, content most of the time, but um, maybe we're hitting. Uh, maybe we're testing the limits of that adage, right? But if you organized it for the award show, so you did have a studio set up somewhere, you did have like Adam Silver with the nomination somewhere, and then you had the award winners on hand to sort of do live broadcasts, like kind of behind the scenes from their living room, I think that could honestly be better than the actual award show is. Like I actually enjoy the award show more uh, more than most people because I get to go to it and it's like you know it's a fun time, and I really enjoy the speeches and the in the post game press conference and everything else. Um, but if we took that away, and instead like Giannis wins the MVP, and he's jumping around his living room with his little ch- uh, child giggling in the background, and then he just like gives us a little speech about hey, you know it's been tough these last couple <laughs> months, but you know this means a lot to me, and you know he just does it with his camera phone like that does bring the fans right to your player. And ultimately that's like the NBA's whole hope is this behind the scenes and an intimate experience. So I think it could work, you know, obviously you'd be sacrificing something in terms of uh, production quality, but I do think that uh, you'd be meeting your fans where they are now. Are they going to be able to get as many streamers as this rapper you're describing? Okay. That's an open question, but mm-hmm. I think if you advertised it, if you had your television and, and media partners pushing it as well. If you made it available like on YouTube as well as television, as well as Instagram, you know, maybe a a Twitter live uh, video as well, you can get a lot of people watching and paying attention. I think it could still be salvaged and it could work. I just think it's really important, Michael, the NBA thinks long and hard about the awards because uh, Adam Silver spoke to Rachel Nichols about this idea of the psychic damage of not having sports, like what that's doing to Americans as a whole. And if they do have to cancel the season and it's done, it's going to hurt a lot of people, right? And we're all in denial. Oh, we're hoping that it doesn't come to that. We are hope they can solve it so- something. But you look at these, uh, whether it's the infection numbers, death toll, everything is increasing, you know, dramatically here from week to week. And it could easily get to a point where there's just like no turning back. And if it comes to that point, the awards are like the best weapon the NBA has to comfort its fans and to comfort its players in a time of what would be real distress, right? So to me, I, I really hope that the contingency plans are happening on the awards so that they would be able to be, uh, you know, the voting would happen quickly and then they could do this type of, uh, you know, social media type show uh, pretty quickly after a potential cancellation, just in, if, in the uh, event that it comes to that, so that not everybody's hearts are broken simultaneously. All right, Michael. On a lighter note, we got some just incredible questions from the Open Floor Globe this week. All over the world, people were checking in with great questions just like Louie. Here's one from Canada. Stephen writes, Thanks for keeping the pod up with great content despite everything that's happening. Canada is pretty much in the same boat as the Southern Neighbors, but we're carrying on and Open Floor is hand down, hands down the best NBA podcast. Good job, Stephen. You knew I would read it if you sucked up to me. And he goes on to write, On last week's podcast, Ben brought up the 1995 playoffs and my ears perked up. I was 12 years old at the time and that season in playoffs was such a pivotal uh, pivotal moment for me as an NBA fan. It's also the reason why I became a graphic designer. The graphics at that time were just super dope. Uh, With the birth of the Raptors, basketball was much more accessible in Canada that year, and I watched more games than ever. And even though the Raptors have always been my favorite team, that duo of Shaquille O'Neal and Penny Hardaway was undeniably great, and it helped me understand the beauty of the game. Shaq's brute force and charismatic nature tearing down rims literally made me think he was a superhero. Penny quickly became my favorite player for his ability to score and assist with finesse. These dudes were bad men. I even remember sneaking into Blue Chips the movie just to see those guys on the big screen. I've never actually been a Magic fan, but I sure did love those years until Shaq broke my heart and left for LA. My question is, was this duo underrated, and do you have a particular basketball moment that changed the way you think of the world? And he said, thanks also for bringing some much-needed nostalgia back during these trying times. And he agreed with me, like Michael, when I said last week that Jordan wearing 45 during that season was super weird. And he went on to say it was obviously the reason the Bulls were knocked out of the playoffs that year. So I'm not sure we're going to go to the numerology explanation on uh, why Michael actually lost in the playoffs. But Michael, I'm curious, were you as big on Shaq and Penny as our guy Stephen from Canada?
2: Well, first off, sneaking into blue chips is a great move that I can kind of relate to. I, I actually snuck into Kazam back in the day, which was Shaq's great great movie about i don't even remember him being a genie and i remember there were cheeseburgers that fl- fell from the sky just Michael, a quality quality did, movie
1: didn't kazam set the record for academy awards i think it did like it had like i think i want to say like 22 nominations and seven wins if i'm not mistaken all-time records and both but anyway continue
2: no yeah i think you're on to something there um i i would say that you know if we're just saying Shaq and Penny. Uh, are they underrated? I think they're properly rated. Um, I think back to the early 90s magic 30 for 30 that came out a little while back. And, you know, they were getting compared to Durant and Westbrook and, and Harden and that era of the Oklahoma City Thunder. And and that felt accurate to me. I mean, they were young, they were exciting. But at the end of the day, they did not accomplish what we thought they could. So in in, in that form, they're kind of like, their legacy is kind of just tragic, um, and that really sucks to say, but that's how they're remembered, and I think that, that is, that's accurate. That's how they should be remembered.
1: They were capable of so much more, in part because Penny was capable of so much more. You know, injuries uh, just kind of derailed his career later, and then, of course, the split. Uh, I think the split gets wound up, wound up being underrated because of Shaq's split with Kobe, right? So it's, like, not mm-hmm. even Shaq's highest-profile divorce, which leaves Penny as, like, You know, his second ex-wife, which, okay, you know, tortured analogy there, but you sort of get where I'm going. Um, Penny's real legacy to me has become the commercials, the Nike commercials, because those have held up so well. Um, Tyra Banks in those commercials, formative experience for you know many viewers around the world. There's oh, yes, we no, don't
2: need to get into this, but yes, I, I agree. Yes,
1: I, wa- I wasn't going to get into it, I was gonna just leave it there, Michael. But uh, the groan in your voice was just slightly creepy, it's a little borderline creepy. Um, but but I think they're they're a little bit underrated here, but they didn't like you're saying they didn't really accomplish that much, so they're gonna wound up uh, getting lost to history slightly. Um, One thing, though, I want to mention, one of my proudest moments of my life, Michael, and this is going back when I was probably in college, so right around the turn of the century, which, boy, that's such an old man thing to say. Maybe I am this driver's ed instructor, but right around (laughs) 2000, Penny Hardaway was doing some event at Venice Beach uh, in California, and I just happened to be there during the summer. I don't know exactly why, but he was walking away from the event, and I don't exactly know what I said, Michael, but I made some sort of a wisecrack. It might've even been a reference to the Penny Hardaway commercials, but my wisecrack made Penny Hardaway laugh. And to me, like up into that point of my life, that was my greatest achievement and i basically reminded my friends of that on almost a daily basis and i would always have them vouch for me to other people hey guys do you remember when i made penny hardaway laugh and they're like yeah we do <laughs> you know, like it was like a little 3 second exchange as he was walking by and he was just being kind but for um, you know a solid 5 years there michael that was the that was the best thing i'd ever done
2: No, that's incredible, and I mean, that should probably go, I'm not going
1: to say that's the first line of your obituary, but that's got (laughs) to fit there somewhere, for sure. It's way up on the list, Stephen. I really hope I impressed you with that incredibly lame story. All right, (laughs) Nathan checks in from Melbourne, Australia. He writes, hey lads, long-time listener, first-time emailer, I'm really baked and I'm listening to a few missed shows on my new couch, self-isolating best practices, strange times we're in. And Michael, he goes on to just give us a nonsense email that really (laughs) did not make any sense. Nathan, I understand what you're up to and how you're coping. I get it. No judgment there. But um, just try to be slightly more coherent with the rest of your email next time. Michael, we're just going to spin his question, which was sort of about going back in time to 1946 and going through every NBA finals to kind of put together a dream finals again, it wasn't coherent. It didn't make sense. But here's what I'm going to ask you, Michael. And I'm going to pretend this question came from Nathan, our, our baked friend in Melbourne. What was the one finals game that took place before you were born that you wish you could have attended and maybe even written about as a media member? Is there one, is it, uh, you know, your your white whale game that you wished you could have a time machine and be like, you know, 20, 30 years older so you could have gotten to experience? What is it, Michael? So,
2: first of all, our questions in this episode are just off the roof, through the charts. Incredible. Um, I, I want to say that, you
1: know, Nathan- Wait, off, off the roof and through the charts. You're starting to sound like Michael Jordan right now, man. The ceiling is the roof, or is it <laughs> is it through the roof and off the charts? What's happening, Michael? Are you making up new uh, phrases, or am I just behind the times?
2: I'm just, I'm, 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 I'm feeling a lot of inspiration from Nathan and you're, and what's going on with him right now. You gotta, you gotta contact,
1: you gotta contact hire from Melbourne <laughs> is what you're saying. <laughs> exactly.
2: Uh, All right, so nobody yeah, do drugs
1: out there. You're not going to, you're going to throw <laughs> off your favorite podcast hosts. They're not going to be able to concentrate. Everybody lived as drug free. Uh, you know, dare, to, dare to keep kids off drugs. Anyway, Michael, Continue. No, but I really
2: loved where you went and where you took this, which was, uh, you know, trying to find the, the, the White Whale Finals game before we were, we were alive. And for me, it's pretty easy. Um, game four of the nineteen eighty four Finals. Wow. This game, uh, the two teams were the Los Angeles Lakers and the Boston Celtics. The Celtics were trailing. Two games to one. They had just gotten blown out in game three. The series was looking very bleak. They were down six with about seven minutes to go when Kevin McHale clotheslines Kurt Rambis and just the whole spirit of the entire series, the energy just shifts towards the Celtics and they eventually win it in seven. And push their undefeated finals record to eight and zero against the los angeles lakers so that game just is like i mean growing up around boston you would see clips of that nonstop all the time people would still be referencing it it was like better than uh like a carlton fisk home run um it was just it was it was a incredibly meaningful place so, so uh that's got to be the game for me. I would just have
1: loved to be in the building for that and experience it firsthand. Do you consider yourself bloodthirsty, Michael? In other words, are you <laughs> wishing you had been there to watch Rambis collapse to the court, or is it more of just like the the history aspect of that victory? It's just, I think it's a little bit of both, to be honest with you. Yeah, I mean, I, you, I, you do strike me as bloodthirsty, Michael, in, in your own just kind of <laughs> quiet psychopath type of way, just maybe a little bit.
2: I'm not going to refute any of that, no.
1: Uh, Well, I'm going to stand up for the Lakers side of things uh, on this one. I think that's a great pick. Um, I'm not going to detract from it. I'm just going to go a different direction. The game that I've always wished I could have watched in person or covered or everything else, the one that I've always heard about for years, it's kind of a stereotypical pick or an easy pick probably, but it's game six of the 1980 NBA Finals. Magic Johnson's sort of emergence as, you know, arguably like an all time great in his rookie year. Of course, the story goes Kareem Abdul Jabbar is hurt. He can't play in game six against the Sixers. It's in Philadelphia. They're maybe going to save him for game seven if they need to. Magic Johnson, a rookie who's 20 years old, gets thrust into the role uh, as a center in Kareem's place. Is he going to be able to save the day? What do you know he does by putting up 42 points? 15 rebounds, seven assists, three steals, and a block in 47 minutes. He shot 14 of 23 from the field. Like that stat line feels fake for any era, feels made up. The idea that you would do that in a closeout finals game as a rookie is just preposterous. And I went back through to see, has anyone else done this in the finals? Like surely LeBron has put up a 42, 15, and seven, right? Never happened. No one else has ever matched that stat line in the NBA Finals. Mike didn't do it. LeBron didn't do it. No one else except for rookie year Magic Johnson. Um, I'm sure the sports writers of their day were running that that famous word, quote-unquote, unprecedented, into the ground after that game, right? Every single person is like, we've never seen this before. Like, what do we even compare it to? Do we induct Magic into the Hall of Fame as a 20-year-old? Of course, he had just come off the... Uh, the, the national title win uh, the previous year with uh, Michigan State, um, people were probably just freaking out at what the next 15 or 20 years of Magic's career might have looked like. And, and certainly, uh, you know, he delivered with uh, just, you know, crazy uh, encore career, you know, leading Showtime for the next decade. But um, at that moment in 1980, it probably was just like mind-blowing. And I wish I had been there to have my mind blown. Can I just add real
2: quickly that I actually watched highlights of that game uh, over the weekend because they were airing, or maybe I just DVR'd it, the the Basketball A Love Story, ESPN's 10-part, 20-hour documentary, which I just cannot uh, recommend highly enough to anyone listening to this. You should go and watch that right now. I think it's streaming on ESPN's app. Um And they have highlights from that game, which I'd I'd never actually, I mean, I obviously was aware of it. I knew the box score line and I knew the stakes and everything, but I'd never seen just a a stream of clips and highlights from it. And like, it it is just magical and breathtaking. And it's like, you're literally watching a legend be born before your eyes. I, I could not even imagine being there in real time to see that
1: happen. No, and it's crazy. The team he he played against by the way had Maurice Cheeks, Dr. J, Dr. J, yeah. Daryl Dawkins, Lionel Hollins, Caldwell Jones, Bobby Jones, Henry Bibby, Steve Mix. I mean, that 8-man rotation is like guy, names that most people would recognize 30 years later, right? And I guess now 40 years later. And for Magic to Put that the team without Kareem on his back and do it like that. It's just wild, man. And uh, great plug there for basketball love story. That's something that everyone should be uh, turning to uh, during this hiatus. No question about it.
0: You decided it was time to upgrade your outdoor deck. So you got all the essentials to do it. You ordered a power washer, a set of patio chairs, and a shiny new grill and you used your Bank of America Cash Rewards credit card, choosing to earn 3% cash back on online shopping and up to 5.25% as a preferred rewards member, which you put towards your most essential deck addition, a bird feeder. Apply for yours at bankofamerica.com slash more rewarding. Copyright 2020, Bank of America Corporation.
1: All right, Michael, we've got two more questions and they're fairly serious that we're going to get to here. I want to uh, make sure we hit this one. It's coming in from Fritz. And he's responding to my idea that I was kind of preaching this idea of look, like, uh, you know, this hiatus, this coronavirus is changing everybody's life, but do whatever you can to just adopt a, like, hey, you know, it's eventually going to be okay mentality and, you know, push off your, your international trips or whatever else it might be into the future and, and just try to, uh, you know, be as patient as possible. And Fritz makes a great point here. He writes, I totally understand the delay mentality is important, and it's true for most things. But I'm a high school senior, and the one thing I can't really delay is my senior spring. Instead, it's pretty much canceled, and it seems that summer may also be in doubt. This applies to all high school and college seniors, but for my friends and I as athletes, we've all lost our senior nights, our last chance at championships, our last time playing on a team competitively with our friends, etc. I'm the captain of my high school sailing team and we are losing our championship regattas. As a sailor, I'm lucky enough to be able to continue my sport in college next year at Connecticut College, but many of my friends who play basketball or baseball won't be able to play in college. So while it is important for everybody to stay inside and play their part, I think that it's important to recognize that some things can't be delayed like senior years that have been stolen from us. And even our graduation now feels in threat. Other than Sports Center's senior night segment, I feel like the loss of senior year for college and high school students across the country and world hasn't been discussed enough. Fritz, man, you are 100% right. There is no question about it. I want you to know, like, I I focus a lot on this show in terms of my heart going out to guys like LeBron and Giannis and, and other big time NBA competitors for them not getting the opportunity to sort of write the end of the NBA season. But my heart really, really goes out to to college and high school athletes who are in your position, who are now not having the, the opportunity to compete for the titles that they were hoping for and not getting the closure to their academic or their athletic careers. And basically just have to move on to the next chapter without that knowledge. Uh, you know, Frankly, and I'll say this straightforward, Fritz, it makes me sick to my stomach on your behalf, man. I, I really, really feel for you. And I'm sorry uh, that that's happened. And there's no question it hasn't been discussed enough. Uh, You you think about athletes like a Sabrina Ionescu at Oregon. Her college career is going to be ending and she's potentially, you know, was going to be able to make history. And, you know, people are saying, hey, she has a chance to be one of the greatest women's basketball players of all time. To not get a tournament for her, uh, you know, it's just after all the build up and all the lead up to it. I mean, it really, really gets to me, Michael uh, you know, save us here. What do you think? Um, uh, do you hear what, what Fritz is saying?
2: Yeah, no, I, I totally sympathize as well. Um, that's something that you can never get back and you're just kind of a victim of really terrible timing. And, uh, unfortunately, uh, like life is about timing in so many different ways. And so it, it's a really terrible situation, and uh, my heart goes out to to Fritz and to the whole team. Um, and just on a quick personal note, a close friend of mine went to Connecticut College, Fritz, and I visited him a few times, and uh, he played Ultimate Frisbee. And so uh, hung out with him there, and it's a very fun school, so at least you have that to look forward to, my friend.
1: Yeah. And Fritz, here's why I brought up your email, because I don't want this to just turn into a pity party, man. And I know it's going to sting you for weeks, if not months, if not years, like this feeling that the the, kind of the, the negative groove you might be in right now, that could linger and it should linger, like let it linger, don't rush through it. But the thing that I would encourage you to do, you know, is try to You know turn this challenge into an opportunity in any way you can right and right now you've got probably more time on your hand that you were than you were expecting uh you're not being able to practice you're not able to go out on the boat maybe um you know your life has been thrown upside down and that's how it is for a lot of us out here right um the toughest moments of my life personally have Almost invariably led to some of the biggest breakthroughs, uh, whether it's with my work or with my personal life or anything else. And I can go back 20 years and, and sort of give you different examples. I've never been through what you're going through right now in terms of having a season canceled, uh, but I have been through some, you know, various, whether it's health scares uh, or personal life changes, whatever it might be. And I think it's just a reminder, and this is something that you'll hear from basketball coaches at every level how you respond to adversity how you handle the toughest moments will define so much of your happiness and so much of your life course here uh, going forward. So I'm just going to throw out a couple of brainstorm ideas for you, because you've got some time here and you are heading off to college. But like, what can you use to kind of fill in Um, you know, this downtime? I mean, are you able to get onto a different type of workout routine than you were on before where you're able to get yourself better prepared for that uh, sailing challenge? Are you able to rework your diet in some way? So you're going to be, you know, more valuable to your college team? Are you able to enhance a skill for your broader life, not even related to sports? Are you able to uh, learn a language? You know, are you able to, you know, get to get, uh, you know, tutoring on, on something like that where you're able to give yourself a jump start and, and have a skill? You know, it's one thing if I could lecture my 19 or 20 year old self, uh, I would say, man, really commit to the Spanish and maybe even consider Mandarin, right? Like really like add this to your portfolio, it will make you a better person, a more valuable employee potentially, and it will open up other doors for you. Um, ask yourself those kinds of questions, Fritz, because I can promise you, like, we're not going to have a pandemic every single year, right? Like, this is a rare uh, challenge, but it's also a rare opportunity. And you want to be able to tell the story of the, the end of your high school and have an upbeat to it. You don't want to be 40 years old looking back and saying, man, I was the best sailor in Connecticut and I never got to prove it. You don't want to have that be your story. You want your story to be, you know what? I had my senior season uh, sailing season robbed for me, but I spun it positively. I learned Spanish, and now I'm the ambassador to Costa Rica, right? I mean, okay, maybe it's not <laughs> gonna play out exactly like that. But you get what uh, you get what I'm saying. It, how you respond to adversity is so important. and that's why NBA coaches they'll come up with ideas of like next play mentality, right? Where if you commit a turnover, you th- you know you pull a J.r. Smith and you have a blunder in a big moment. How do you rally yourself and get back on the right track? And you hear Steve Kerr talk about it all the time. Remember when he called his players last year during the playoffs bleeping Giants? What he was referring to was not uh, what they necessarily were dunking, shooting three-pointers, the physical attributes. Everything he was talking about with the bleeping Giants comment was mentally. How they responded to adversity, how they were able to come together after injuries and and go onto the you know into a road environment and, and dig out a really tough win against a quality team. It's always about uh, that mental focus uh, and the ability to see kind of the bigger picture. So Fritz, that's my challenge to you, man. I hear you loud and clear. I'm validating every negative feeling that you're having right now, but I also think you're going to be able to be the bigger person here and, and pull through the other side and and hopefully add a skill or add an attribute. Or, or, turn this negative into a positive in some way, and that's going to be the story uh, of the end of your high school, not about, you know, oh, I didn't get to have a graduation ceremony or everything else. That, that's what I'm hoping for you, and, um, you know, that's from, from me to you, heart to heart. I know it's mushy. You know, you don't have to play it in front of your girlfriend, but uh, nobody else is listening anyway, so don't worry about it. <laughs> Just control what you can control,
2: man. That's that's uh, and focus on what you can't control because if you get wrapped up in what you can't, you'll drive yourself insane.
1: Absolutely right. All right, our last question, Michael. It's a follow up. Do you remember the Aaron Gordon, Orlando Magic fan from a couple weeks ago, who was seeking revenge because his girlfriend cheated on him during the slam dunk contest? I will never forget it. And we try to give him some real, you know, serious life advice about not getting dragged down to her level and moving forward and not trying to seek revenge and certainly not hoping that Aaron Gordon would take HGH and and cheat to his own benefit and and therefore win an NBA title. Uh, I mean, you remember this whole conversation, right, Michael?
2: It's I think about it every day.
1: Well, we have bad news. Jonathan wrote back in and his story has changed considerably, Michael. Here it comes. Dear Ben and Michael, two weeks ago, I wrote my very first email to the Open Floor podcast. As you might remember, it addressed the topic of cheating scandals. I highlighted the email by talking about my own personal cheating scandal that happened on the night Aaron Gordon got cheated out of the dunk contest. When I wrote to you, my world was in a much better place. Since writing that email, I have canceled my spring break trip. I have been told not to leave my apartment and I have been let go from my job because of the coronavirus. This might come as a shock, but I am not here for your sympathy. Instead, I come for forgiveness. And he writes in bold, I have sinned. That morning, two weeks ago, when I wrote my first email to you, I was completely lying. I wanted to write a simple question about cheating scandals, but I got carried away. One lie led to another, and I ended up making a fool out of myself, all because I thought I was funny. To make matters worse, I don't even like Aaron Gordon and the Orlando Magic. I'm a Golden State Warriors fan, and I am too young to even remember a time before Steph Curry. I I am not a spiritual (laughs) or religious person, but ever since hearing both of you give me heartfelt, honest advice to my abusive lies, my spirit has been in torment. What has resulted is terrible karma and the only person I can blame is myself. Ben, Michael, to say that you have helped me see God is an understatement. As my life spirals out of control, I ask for your forgiveness, your mercy, and your grace. Whatever you need from me, I am here. If my confession requires me watching five magic games, that's fine. If it requires me watching 10 pre-Curry Warriors games, I understand. If forgiveness requires you to get creative with my confession deeds, I accept. The only thing I have right now is time. And he signs it, Jonathan, the liar, Michael. (laughs) (laughs) So here's the deal, Jonathan. Here's the problem. You know, now that you've lied and abused our trust, I don't know how much of this email I can believe. And that, that really, that, that makes me sad to admit, um, I don't even know if you're really a Warriors fan. I don't know your age. I question this whole story, Michael, and I don't really know what my advice is for Jonathan. I'm not sure I can forgive him. I feel so betrayed here, Michael. Are you ready to forgive? And if so, what's Jonathan's penance?
2: I- I'm a merciful person,
1: right? So I'm Wait, willing you said, to for- You said merciful or merciless? Because I know you were talking <laughs> about like Kurt Rambis' bloodlust not too long ago. So you better clarify Kurt had it coming. Um, I am
2: merciful. I I think that uh, if Jonathan is coming clean here as the liar that he is, then uh, then we should we should forgive him. But I will say it is very difficult to have sympathy for someone who is a Golden State Warriors fan who is too young to remember a time without Steph Curry. That's just to me the. Um, I don't even. I, I. I. This is a family pod, so I don't want to 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 curse or anything. But that that type of fandom, <clears throat> that fan category, is just really tough to to align myself with. Michael, um, this is
1: not his sin. His sin is making up his girlfriend <laughs> cheating know. up on him. Okay, come on. <laughs> like, if he wants to bandwagon Steph Curry, that's fine. That's the least of our concerns.
2: But I will say, Jonathan, you should. I mean, like. Watching ten pre Curry Warrior games as punishment—like you should be doing that anyway. You're a Warriors fan. Watch that team suffer, learn about the organization's tough history, and become a real fan. That's what—that's all I have to say about that.
1: Look, Michael, I'm a reality-based person. You know, honesty and integrity—that goes a long way in my book. But I, I think Jonathan, you're being too hard on yourself. Okay. Bottom line is you provided us with an entertaining conversation and not one, but two. And I'm not going to encourage all the other Open Floor Globe members out there to write in fake fan fiction emails about what their lives are like, just solely so that we can give them advice on made up scenarios for their own amusement. Um, I'm certainly not going to do that, especially because the one guy we know who's done it, his life has spiraled out of control as he's described. So we don't want to set that precedent. We don't want to be jinxing people, uh, from continent to continent, but Jonathan, I forgive you. I've decided I can do it. Um, I think your heart was in the right place. You were trying to contribute to the show in your own way. Um, you know, I understand sometimes I get a little, you know, carried away with my uh, comparisons and conversations. And, you know, certainly the, the John Wall uh, analogy that I made earlier might have been going a little bit too far, uh, Spot referring, on. referring to Paul Millsap as the driver's ed instructor, you know, it might just be you know, slightly over the line. Um, you know, it happens. I forgive you. I say no penance whatsoever. But I do want the only thing that I do want from you, Jonathan, I want real life updates from how you're going to put your life back together, okay? And first of all, I don't know if I can believe you that your life has fallen apart. So that's that stings, you know, that hurts, you know, a little bit. The the trust has been violated. But if you have lost your job, if these other negative things have happened to you, I need some quarantine updates, okay? I don't need a diary. I don't need every single day, but as you pull things back together, I want you to keep us informed. I think that's your penance. Ultimately, you are now accountable to us. We own you, Jonathan, and I hope you don't forget it.
2: (laughs) Speaking of fan fiction real quick, maybe, Jonathan, you could write uh, a page or two about what the Warriors would look like if they traded Steph Curry
1: instead of Monte Ellis to the Milwaukee Bucks. How about that? I think that's fair. That's actually a great one. Good job, Michael. See, you are a benevolent god over here, the pod god. (laughs) We see new layers to your personality every week. All right, guys. Jonathan, by the way, here's your real penance. Go to Apple Podcasts, search for Open Floor. That's two words. When you find our page, scroll down. It will say rate and review, tap five stars, and tell the whole world how we've made your life better. Okay, please, Jonathan, that would really help us out. And then tell all your friends to give us a five-star review as well. We would appreciate it. Guys, you can find Michael on Twitter and Instagram at Michael, V as in Victor, Pina. You can find me on Instagram at BenGolliver. on Twitter at BenGoliver. We will be back later this week with a whole bunch of questions that we didn't get through today. Great questions, but keep them coming, guys. OpenFloorMail at gmail.com. OpenFloorMail at at gmail.com. We'll take your serious questions, your lighthearted questions, your completely lying fan fiction. At this point, we're desperate. We'll take it all. We will, uh, and we will discuss it all, Michael, uh, in a couple days. Until then, I will talk to you. Talk soon, Ben.